I'm going to let you decide what I am doing in this uh, second session uh, this afternoon. Um, is it a message or a lecture or a sermon? Uh, I think it will be more of a sermon. Also, as you listen to me, you'll see that I'm very much involved here in kind of carrying some coals to Newcastle uh, with so far as Lane Tipton's lecture this morning is concerned. But I'm not too concerned about that because um, particularly in the things of God's word, uh, redundancy never hurts. And, uh, and I will, uh, you'll see where the overlap is and I think you'll also uh, see how uh, what I have to say what, and what he was saying supplement each other. Uh, probably if you're looking for, if you're a conference organizer and you're looking for a conference with a certain uh, greater breadth to it, you probably shouldn't have Lane Tipton and myself as the speakers. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> um, what I'd like to do in this uh, session, uh, and you'll see from the handout, I hope you still have it from this morning, uh, turn on, is this on the uh, back side, reverse side? Um, I want to uh, orient us uh, to uh, Philippians 1.6, uh, uh, take that text as our point of departure, and then uh, uh, reflect on it uh, largely through the lens of the Ephesians 2 passage, which we have already had our uh, attention directed to in a very focal way in, in the first uh, session. And... Um, as we come to look at the, um, at, at the Philippians 1-6 statement, I'd like to uh, juxtapose it or uh, set it in contrast to what we might uh, describe as an anti-text. What is not our text? That's what an anti-text is if you're wondering. Well, the anti-text that I have in mind is a bumper sticker. It's a bumper sticker that I dare say everyone here today is familiar with. It, it, it cycles and appears on uh, cars of, of uh, believers from time to time. It's the bump, bumper sticker that reads, Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. I won't ask for a show of hands uh, if you've heard that before. I certainly won't ask for a show of hands if it's been or is on the bumper of your car. <laughs> now the, the, the immediate reaction, the reaction of many believers might be, what is wrong with that bumper sticker? Uh, isn't it true that as a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, my sins are forgiven? The Bible assures me of that, and I know very well that I'm not perfect, and certainly that is true, all that's true. But what I'd like to do is, is raise a question in your mind, at least, about just one little word in that bumper sticker, and it's the word just. Are Christians just forgiven? Let's have that in mind as we now look into God's word together. And particularly, as I indicated, our point of departure in Philippians 1.6, Paul is writing to uh, Christians in that ancient Greek city, uh, northeast on the Greek peninsula, God's word. Uh, and, and Paul there expresses his confidence. Paul expresses his confidence about them. Uh, it's a confidence, however, that Paul has just not just about them, but about every believer in Christ, regardless of time, regardless of culture, regardless of circumstances. Paul says he is confident. This is the confidence he expresses, that God has begun a good work in you and will complete it, will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, will bring it on to completion, will carry it on to completion at or until the day of Jesus Christ, as we could translate. Now here Paul, you see, speaks of a good work that God, a good work that God, the Savior of the church, has begun 
And that good work begun is what I want now to focus our attention on. And we can do that by answering, posing and answering two questions. First, what is this good work? What is its nature? And secondly, what are some of the consequences? What are some of the results? So first of all, uh, to focus on the good work begun. What is it? What is its reality? Now the first thing that we may note here, Paul says that the good work begun is a good work begun in believers, not for believers. By the way, I should have maybe mentioned this earlier, just interject here. Paul, in this text, writes in the plural. But he is surely thinking about what God has done in each believer. This statement has an individual application. In other words, Paul is not saying a good work that God has, been, has done among you, Philippians. Uh, that's true of some of you, but not others of you. And so Paul speaks then of a good work done in the believer, not for the believer. And here we have then a distinction. It's an important distinction, and we need to think about it. And to do that, it will be useful. It will help us to remind ourselves of what is the dark reality that is in the background here, and that is the reality of sin, the reality of human sin. Now, what is sin? Sin, we can remind ourselves again, is our rebellion against God, our disregard of his law, our not delighting in what he is doing, our doing what he forbids by not doing what he desires. Now, as sin is that, it has all sorts of disastrous consequences in its sheer miserableness, the destructive results of sin, they are, are, are manifold, they are untold. We could talk about them all afternoon. But as we consider that complexity, the, uh, the, the, the multiplicity, of uh, uh, the, the manifold miserableness of, 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 of the sin and its consequences, it's important that we keep in mind a basic profile. And here, I have it already set out for me on the blackboard. <laughs> so I'll just underline again uh, uh, points that um, uh, Lane Tipton brought out um, earlier. Um, it's important to see, and again, we don't want to uh, lose sight of uh, specifics, because that's the specifics are what our lives are all about. But as we consider the full misery of our sin, how horrendously, how ruinously sin complicates our lives, sin has two fundamental consequences. It affects first our status before God. It renders us guilty. It, it leaves us exposed to his holy anger. It leaves us liable to his just judgment, to condemnation that we deserve. But that's not the only consequence of sin. Uh, as if that weren't bad enough, then it affects our condition, our disposition, our makeup, our conduct as persons. It leaves us totally corrupt, totally depraved, as we often say. Sin renders us its slaves, slaves to Satan. Sin leaves us in a situation where sin is the power that dominates our lives. So, to sum up sin, to sum up for sin, it renders us, uh, as we might put it, inexcusably guilty, but utterly helpless as well, dead in trespasses and sins, as a uh, Paul puts it in that probably that most desire, uh, most uh, dire description of sin, and as, as it has been already explicated for us today. Now that's the bad news. That's the news, the bad news about our sin. And it's against that background then 
that we can now consider good news because the good news only makes sense against the background of the bad news. As you're aware, the principle that is always operative is that expressed at the end of Romans 5 where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And so it's only as we begin to see how bad our sin is, only then do we begin to see just how good the good news, the gospel is. How it is that the grace of God in Christ for our salvation is more than adequate to deal with our sin and to do so in all of its multiple consequences. But now, just as the manifold consequences of sin are of two basic kinds, remember, our status and our condition, so... The manifold, multiplex grace of God in dealing with our sin has two basic effects. Saving grace changes our status before God. And I just uh, remind us here how that is. Because of Christ's obedience, his perfect obedience culminating in his death as a sacrifice for our sin, bearing in our place the punishment, the eternal punishment we deserve as sinners, God, for Christ's sake, because Christ has done that, God freely forgives us our sin and reckons Christ's obedience, his perfect obedience as ours. His righteousness in God's eyes is seen as ours. Our status, then, is that before the bar of God's justice, before, the, before God's all-searching just eye, we are no longer guilty but innocent. We stand acquitted. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. This, then, is the work that God does for us. I hope all of you will know, many certainly, I've been talking about our justification which we have by faith alone, as we accept, receive, and rest upon Christ alone. This is at the heart of the gospel. This is the truth of our bumper sticker. Sinners are forgiven. And there is no good news for sinners without it. I want to be very clear about that. But now you see, <clears throat> there's another second question. What about our condition? Our condition as sinners. I'm not talking now about our guilt, but our corruption. <clears throat> our being enslaved to the power of sin. Let me put it as a question. Does God, God as our Savior now, does God do nothing about that? Does he just ignore our corruption and depravity? Does he just forgive us and simply leave our depravity untouched? Now, I hope you would uh, agree with me, if you understand anything about the Bible, that to ask that question is already to point us to the answer. Immediately, two things should be clear to us. First, God will not simply do nothing about our sinful corruption. I'll put it even more strongly. God could not. There are certain things God can't do. He could not do that. Because then he would have not dealt fully with our sin. And that just can't be. Let me push that further with question. How could God, the holy God who hates sin, it, how could that God ignore that sin in any respect in the sinners that he has chosen in Christ to love? How could God, who loves those sinners so much with a love so great that he didn't even spare his own son in order to save us, how could he, that God, that loving God, let me put it this way, be so unkind, so unkind as to leave us in the misery of our slavery to sin as bond servants of Satan. That could never be. So it's clear then that if God is going to do something about our sinful condition, about the way you and I act and speak and think, then he must do a work in us. And in fact, it must be a good work 
in us, not only for us. And this will be a work, it's clear, that changes, that affects us, the way we act and speak and think. And that is the work that Paul is talking about in Philippians 1.6, that he is confident about and that and that uh, he, he and that he is confident about in believers the good work that God has begun in them. Paul is confident, assures us, he God will perfect at Christ's return. Now, in uh, the uh, the uh, related in, in the theological category, we're talking about our sanctification, which is not to be confused with our justification. But as we can now see or beginning to see is inseparable from our justification now to help us understand further the nature of the good work its reality what more exactly it is we want to give our attention to the passage in Ephesians 2 1 through 10 and uh, the structure has already been um, well analyzed for us in uh, uh, Lane Tipton's first lecture, and let me just uh, touch on, uh, uh, just underline certain points again. Here we do have, uh, as I think I mentioned earlier, one of the most dire descriptions of human sinfulness in Scripture. Nothing less than being dead in trespasses, transgressions, and sins. And you see, your situation can't get more desperate than that. Dead. People who are dead in their sins are totally helpless to do anything about their sinful condition. And maybe I could just uh, say this in passing as a kind of reminder, but it's an important one. Christianity, the gospel we need always to keep clear to ourselves and others, is not some kind of coping mechanism. It is not basically a theory, excuse me, a therapy or a therapeutic option. In the deepest sense, Christianity is not a self-help program. A dead person can't help himself. But then at verse 4, Paul speaks to us of the God of great love and rich mercy and what he has done. And that, that God of mercy has done what he alone is able to do. Paul says that just when we were dead in our sins, Paul says to the church, God made us alive with Christ so that we are no longer dead in our sins. Now, if there should be any doubt what Paul has in mind here, it becomes clear by what he immediately goes on to add in verse 6. Our being made alive with Christ is a matter of our being raised up with Christ and having been seated with, and he has seated us together with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here comes into view now what is effected in our union with Christ, our being united to Christ by faith. Paul is saying here that one who is a believer in Jesus Christ God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, has so united that person to the resurrected, well, to the crucified and resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus, that Christ's death is now my death, and his resurrection and ascension are my resurrection and ascension. And one basic consequence of this, then, is that God has begun a good work in us. We can see now what is coming through here. The good work begun in us is nothing less than a work of resurrection. That's amazing, and yet it's not surprising. I say it's amazing because we have here what only God can do, what no one else is ever capable of doing. Certainly sinners are not capable of making themselves alive. Only God raises the dead. And yet, as I said, in a way it's not surprising. 
Because how could it, you see, be anything less than a work of resurrection? If we are dead in our trespasses and sins, but are now no longer dead in trespasses and sins, only resurrection could bring about that situation, that sort of change from death to life. Now, we must not tone down on what Paul says here and elsewhere. That may be our tendency. Paul is not speaking here figuratively or about what is only, as some might put it, true in principle. He's not simply talking here about a positional resurrection, but he is here speaking literally. Here we could remind ourselves of the of a well-known, the often memorized Galatians 2.20, where Paul expresses what is true of himself, but as it is true for all believers. He means what he says there. When he says, I am crucified with Christ, I no longer live. Christ lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He is talking about a resurrection here that is real. As real as will be the resurrection of our bodies at Christ's return. Now, if you've been following me at all uh, here, um, I wonder what your reaction is. Uh, I dare uh, say uh, something like this. Well, that sounds good, but I don't feel very resurrected this afternoon. As I look at myself, as I look at my own life, as I look at others, as I look at other Christians, I see so much that is decidedly unresurrected. The temptations I succumb to, the sins that continue to plague me, but if that is our reaction, and it's a reaction I think we all uh, can have in one way or the other, let me just say now that the issue here, the ultimate issue here is not how you feel. It's not what you can see, whether in yourself or others. But the issue here is what you and I are to believe. What God tells us is true. What we are to know to be true about ourselves, as we know that by faith, trusting God, trusting his word. Here, the operative principle of the Christian life, as in every other, is that of 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We walk by faith and not by sight. And specifically here, then, we are to consider our union with Christ. And we are to consider that as we consider our union with Christ, we are to understand, we are to believe that his resurrection is not an isolated event. Christ was not raised. He was raised as an individual, but he was not raised as an isolated individual. He, in his resurrection, is firstborn from the dead. Colossians 1.18. He is the first fruits of them that slept, 1 Corinthians 15.20, which is to say that he is the first fruits, the beginning of a resurrection harvest. And our share, you see, as believers in that resurrection harvest that began with Christ's resurrection is not only a future hope when we will be raised bodily, and it is most assuredly that, but, the, but for believers, our share in that harvest is not only to be in the future, but it is in a present, but it is a present reality. 2 Corinthians 4.16, which is a passage I have there on the sheet for you, I think helps us looking at ourselves as believers to understand uh, uh, and, and, uh, and appreciate of the truth of what we're considering. 
Paul says, 2 Corinthians 4.16, so we do not become discouraged, as I think it, it's best translated here. We do not become discouraged, though our outer man is wasting away, our inner man is being renewed daily, or day by day. This distinction, see Paul draws a distinction here between the outer self and the inner self. That is not to point to two parts or even to, and certainly not to two persons, but to two sides or aspects of who I am as a person. And uh, very briefly here, perhaps uh, too briefly, um, to reflect or to spell out that distinction a little bit. What Paul here calls the outer man or the outer self, uh, elsewhere much more frequently the body, that is who I see in the mirror. The way in which we are relating to each other now. Uh, we could say it's the psychophysical package that I am, who I am and what I think and say and do. I, it's, the outer self is the functioning self. But Paul says that is not all there is to us as human persons. There is also to consider the inner self, what Paul much more frequently refers to as the heart. And that is who I am at the core of my being, my deepest and truest self, who I am in back of, deeper than what I think and say and do. And so Paul is saying here, in effect, something like this. When I, what I see about myself, the functioning me, of itself is ultimately discouraging. It's perishing. It's on its way to the grave. Exposing me, this outer self-existence, to all sorts of temptations that often do result in my sinning. But Paul says also here, deep down inside me, beyond what I can see is the center of who I am. And there, a daily ongoing work of renewal is being maintained and taking place. A renewal that is bound to come to expression. However imperfectly, however flawed, it is bound to express itself in what I think and say and do and how I relate to others. And that renewal of the inner self that shows itself in the conduct of the outer self is based on the good work that God has begun in every believer. A work that we have now seen is a work of nothing less than resurrection. In a related passage, Romans 6, 1 and following, which I'll just touch on briefly because I anticipate that Dr. Tipton is going to be going at it in greater detail. <clears throat> Paul says that those who are united with Christ in his death and resurrection have died to sin, verse 2. That is, at the core of their being, deeper than our depravity, Believers have been delivered from the control and domination of sinning. They have been delivered from the slavery of sin, of being enslaved to sin. Yes, sin for the believer is still a very real power. But it is, Paul is announcing here, not our absolute master as it is for unbelievers. Sin is indwelling, yes, but it is not overpowering. Sin is besetting, but it is not dominating. Believers from being dead in sin are now dead to sin as the controlling power in their lives and instead raised with Christ, united to Christ in his resurrection, they are alive to God. They are alive to righteousness. 
And if you'll look at verses 12 and 13, uh, which is an immediate uh, conclusion point in uh, the opening section of Romans 6, I, I just wanted to highlight uh, the way in which Paul captures our situation as believers. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Uh, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members to God as instruments for unrighteousness. I suggest that we look at this passage in the light of the inner self, outer self distinction of 2 Corinthians 4. See how that's captured here in two expressions. We are those as believers who are alive from the dead, resurrected, but we are that only in our mortal bodies. So I think we must put the matter just this way. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your bodily resurrection is still future. It's a hope. But though that is the case, Paul teaches, at the core of your being, in the deepest recesses of who you are, you will never be more resurrected than you already are. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Here Paul is telling us who the Holy Spirit is as much as anything as he indwells and is at work in believers. He is nothing less than the power of resurrection life. Or if you look back just one verse in Romans 8, the body is dead on account of sin, but the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is life on account of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, resurrection life on account of righteousness. This is good news. It's the gospel. It's also challenging. So that brings us, secondly, um, to say something as to the consequences of the good work begun. Consequences of the good work begun. Now, we've already seen something of that, and, and there's much more uh, as to the consequences than I'm going to be able to spell out or even give an indication of here. I hope you, that you can appreciate that. Uh, what we're being told in the teaching of Paul as a whole, that the, the Christian life as much as anything in all of its aspects, aspects is a life of resurrection. So every aspect of, 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 of Christian life and conduct uh, comes into purview here. Uh, but uh, let's see now, coming back to the Ephesians 2 passage, how Paul works that, uh, spells that out. Uh, and here we can, uh, here I can piggyback on uh, Lane uh, Tipton's comments in uh, the, the morning lecture. As he pointed up, a key theme in this passage is that of walking, which is a metaphor, a way of speaking. We still... Uh, uh, use that language, it's an English idiom, we talk about a person's walk, by which we mean a way of life, a lifestyle. Uh, and then with that is in the passage, with that key idea, there a contrast is drawn between two radically opposed or different walks, uh, ways of living. Uh, that idea brackets the passage. It's, as I put it, it's the bookends of the passage. The passage opens with his readers' old, former, pre-Christian walk, characterized as a walking in trespasses and sins. And as it was pointed out in the morning's uh, lecture, it's not just a matter of 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 an inability, but it, it's an this is a this is a deadness of that involves activity. These are the walking dead. 
And then Paul, having described that situation, closes, as we come to the other end of the passage, with their present walk, their new walk, their Christian walk, characterized as a walking in good works for which they've been recreated in Christ. And that raises the question, what explains this complete turnaround? See, what this passage brings into view is a radical 180-degree reversal in walk, in conduct. Well, you know the answer, and you certainly should know if you were listening at this morning's lecture. It's right there in the middle of the passage, which you can see is kind of the pivot point in verses 5 and 6. What effects this radical walk reversal is the work of resurrection that we have experienced in Christ and being united with him in his death and resurrection as that becomes effective in our lives. It is also in terms of uh, verse 10, as has been ex uh, explained, a work of new creation. And the outcome, uh, not the only one, but it is a, a large overall uh, outcome, a large and important one. It's the one that Paul singles out here. The outcome of this resurrection reversal is the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see what we're uh, able to recognize now. One basic result of the good work which God has begun in us is the good works we are to do. The good work of God results in good works, the good works of his people. And that is the distinguishing mark of their new creation, resurrection walk. How is that to show itself? By serving God and others in all sorts of ways as we delight in pleasing God, in doing his will and in serving and pleasing in the light of that law, serving and pleasing others. So now we've brought our attention to the good works in view in our passage in Ephesians 2. Now what is your reaction when you hear the, that expression, good works? For many of us, I think it's fair to say uh, we become uneasy, especially uneasy about talking too positively about good works or insisting, as we are insisting now, by the way, on their necessity in the life of the believer. Uh, particularly as Protestant heirs of the Reformation, we are hesitant to speak too highly, too positively of good works because of the way some, the whole Roman Catholic system, have seen good works as necessary for achieving our salvation and continuing uh, to maintain it. Securing good works seen as securing for us a favorable verdict at the final judgment. And of course, we should be very clear that with that sort of striving where good works are understood in that sense, as a meritorious accomplishments of believers, uh, the heart of the gospel is compromised, it's lost. But uh, you can see now that good works is a biblical expression. And as such, as it's used here in Ephesians 2.10 and elsewhere, uh, it's used quite positively, and we may not allow ourselves then to de be deprived of this good and positive understanding of good works. And so I'd like to think with you uh, a bit further here, reflect further on this matter of good works. I think we can observe fairly that as evangelical believers in the evangelical church uh, however, we're going to define that, and I won't get into that, reformed and non-reformed. 
uh, I think we speak fairly of a tendency, a tendency that may more be more practical uh, than theoretical, but sometimes theoretical. And that is the tendency to view the gospel almost exclusively in terms of justification. To equate salvation and justification. You see, that's the theology of our bumper sticker. Christians are just forgiven. On this view, then, sanctification is seen as the response of the believer to salvation, defined as justification. So that sanctification is largely seen as amounting to an expression of gratitude from our side for our justification, that we have been freely forgiven. And then often that is with the accent on the imperfection the inadequacy of our expressions of gratitude. And sometimes, in this vein of thinking, there's almost a suggestion that sanctification is surely highly desirable. It, its lack is certainly unbecoming, but it is not really necessary in the life of the believer, not really integral to salvation, a part of salvation. The attitude, I think, that I'm, I'm talking about, I don't believe is over-caricaturing or caricaturing. <clears throat> the attitude is something like this. If Jesus did that for you, died for your sins, shouldn't you at least try to do this for him, please him? So we have a construction which, in effect, views matters this way, justification is a matter of what God does and does perfectly. Sanctification is what we do and do very inadequately. Now, I have to be clear that I'm not misunderstood in the emphasis I'm giving here. I'm not against gratitude. Surely our gratitude is important. How could we be anything but grateful, so deeply grateful for the free forgiveness of our sins. And it is no doubt the case, no doubt true, that all of our efforts as believers are at best imperfect and flawed by our sinning. As Lord's Day 44 um, answer of 114 in the Heidelberg Catechism uh, puts it, our obedience in this life our obedience in this life is such that we make only a small beginning. But along with that truth, we need to recognize that the New Testament and Paul particularly sounds a different note, a much more radical note about sanctification and the good works of Christians. The small beginning is in fact a resurrection beginning, which is to say the small beginning is an eschatological beginning. And what we need to impress upon ourselves is that sanctification is first of all not a matter of what we do, but of what God does. No less than our justification, our sanctification is a work of his grace and uh, of of many things that could be pointed up here, uh, just point you to the, to the so helpful, excellent statements in this regard. Uh, shorter Catechism, Q and, uh, answer 35, larger Catechism, 75. In fact, as we have been seeing uh, in, in our reflections, Sanctification is a part of, it's an aspect, an outcome of the reality of the resurrection already experienced by the believer. The Bible, the New Testament, recognizes no tension, no uneasy alliance between salvation by grace and sanctification, no tension between faith in Christ and good works. And that is nowhere more clear than in our Ephesians 2 passage 
And let me direct you again to verses 8, 9, and 10, which is perhaps the most single instructive passage in Scripture in this regard. Let me read them again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, not of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Notice what happens now within the short space of these two compact sentences that make up these three verses. Works is used, the word works is used in two quite opposite senses, even antithetical senses. In, our, in these verses here, works are both the enemy of grace and the fruit of grace. On the one hand, verses 8 and 9, saving grace through faith stands opposed, implacably opposed to works that are understand, understood uh, as attempting to base salvation on human accomplishment. As God sovereignly saves, as he justifies, I think we can fairly gloss here, it cuts off every effort at self-salvation. All attempts, as I said, to base salvation on human accomplishment. But on the other hand, and what's striking, at the same time, inseparably, from what is said in verse 8 9 is what is expressed in verse 10. Grace, also saving grace, Grace functions as the power of the new creation in Christ to produce good works in those saved by grace through faith. By the way, just in passing, it's a comment I find myself making from time to time. Uh, make a commitment to yourself that you will never quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 without verse 10. Uh, Years ago, uh, I came across a statement. Uh, it's in uh, G.C. Burkhauer's book on faith and sanctification that I found so helpful uh, in, 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 in addressing this issue. Burkhauer puts it this way. In the biblical sense, the way of good works is not the way of man to God, but the way of God to man. You see, we misunderstand what the Bible calls good works if we see them somehow as the effort on our part to close the distance between God and ourselves, uh, to gain his favor and forgiveness, uh, to keep our part of the bargain, as it were, even as gratitude. And the point, as I think we may fairly put it, it risks a certain uh, overstatement, but I think in context of what we're saying, you can I hope you can appreciate now what we are inclined to speak of as our good works are ultimately not ours, but they are God's. Good works, the believer's good works are his work begun and continuing in us. His being at work in us, as Paul says, both to will and to do what pleases him. That's why without any tension, a faith that rests in God the Savior is a faith that is restless to do his will. Or as Luther put it, Luther, faith is a busy little thing. <laughs> and the point here, uh, and you can see how this builds again on, on what... Uh, Dr. P uh, Tipton was, was wanting to bring out in, in, in involved in his lecture. A faith that trusts in Christ is a faith that works through love and every other fruit of the Spirit produced in our lives. Let me close, um, as I should, um, with uh, this, uh, this challenge. 
uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, 7 asks some searching rhetorical questions of Christians. You'll remember them. Let me remind you. Who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? These are questions that we do well to put to ourselves every morning when we get up and look in the mirror for the first time. There are questions then that we need to be sure have the same answer for sanctification as well as justification, for our good works as well as our faith. Both are God's gift, his work in us, good works as well as faith. And neither good works any more than faith provides any ground for boasting other than in God. So the deepest motivation, deepest motive for sanctification, for holy living, for good works, is not our psychology, how I happen to feel about Jesus or God today. It's not our gratitude. It's not even ultimately our faith, though all these things are involved. But rather that deepest motive is the good work, the resurrection good work that God has begun in us by uniting us to Christ and continues to perfect by his spirit in union with Christ. I just touch on our anti-text. Christians are not perfect, just forgiven. Uh, what do you think about that bumper sticker now? I'm not in the bumper sticker business, but I could propose a better one. Christians are not yet perfect, but in Christ, God has forgiven them and has begun a good work in them. I'll let you decide whether or not that's going to fit on the bumper of your car. <laughs> but I hope uh, that this is something, as we've had the opportunity to be together today, that we could take great encouragement in. Five minute break? 15 minute yes. break? Okay, a 15 minute break.